Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. In Glasgow at COP26, there are people that have parachuted in to climate change. That could not be said of the former vice president of the United States. And with that, there's no need to mention his name. Francine Lacroix with a gentleman from Tennessee. Yeah, thank you so much, Tom, John, and Lisa. I am delighted to be speaking to Al Gore, really the original proponent of sustainability and climate change, who for years and decades has been trying to make this a reality. Uh, Vice President Gore, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you Here, for having me. Today's climate finance, It's we're focusing on the funding, on the finance, on how we transition better. I want to ask about your investment firm. This is something with the joint venture also with Goldman Sachs, and you're basically only targeting assets that are decarbonizing, which means that all the portfolios are well below the 1.5 degrees. Is this how you do it right? Yeah. Well, Generation Investment Management uh, was one of the small group that convened this Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, and it's now up to this incredibly large number, $52 trillion, and it's part of the larger package that Mark Carney talked about. Uh, the rules of the road are, are still being uh, worked out in, in great detail. Uh, for, for our part, we are actually committed to net zero, right. real net, net zero. Uh, some who have made this commitment are still working toward that uh, maximum goal. And I think what you're seeing here in this uh, conference overall is a big wheel turning slowly. I think the world is awakening to the dire uh, danger our civilization is in, and I won't go into all that, but uh, obviously Mother Nature is making the point very powerfully, and people are now responding, and in the finance sector, they are now saying, look, we got to be part of the solution and we got to stop funding the problem. How do we turn the wheel faster? So if you're an investor today, yeah. how do you avoid greenwashing? How do you avoid making the mistakes yeah. that then leads to probes saying your financial product is not ESG enough? Well, in its essence, greenwashing is just a cheap trick that uh, people are beginning to see through. Uh, it won't work for long. Uh, in the age of the Internet, people are ferreting out what's real and what's not. It, it will take a little time. But, you know, uh, society as a whole is now insisting that all of the institutions uh, of our civilization begin to respond to this with the sense of urgency that, that's appropriate. Uh, and that's why you've seen this wave of ESG investing, albeit with a lot of greenwashing. Uh, and, and as people begin to focus more intently, they're going to insist that they do it for real and get rid of this greenwashing. How do you measure success? If you look at some of the things, for example, investment products, I know we're waiting for a common language. Yeah. We're waiting for taxonomy. We're waiting for a price on carbon. Yeah. But how do you make sure that investors don't walk away from COP26 with a pat on the back saying, we've done the job, but let's go back to business the old way? Yeah, I don't think that they're going to be able to do that because a lot of the large asset owners, including pension funds, are, are saying, you know, uh, we, we want to go with managers that are actually committed for real and not just a, a pretend commitment. 
Um, and I don't think that the, there's going to be a letdown after this. I think the pressure is on. Uh, this this uh, conference or COP pro- process includes 50,000 people, and a lot of the major commitments and progress uh, that's being made uh, take place outside of this plenary hall, take place outside of the negotiating sessions, but actually involve uh, people who are in finance, uh, in uh, who are CEOs of businesses, and they're hearing from their customers. But how much of a problem is it that private money, as you say, is going faster than public money? And what can we do to change that, to at least align them? Well, we need reform of the multilateral development banks, for sure. The World Bank is not yet on side. Uh, and the, the, the head of the World Bank is a perfectly nice uh, guy uh, appointed by the previous U.S. president or chosen by him. Uh, the staff is actually very good there, in my opinion, but uh, they're not yet really committed to to helping as they should. There is a tremendous amount of work going on to try to come up with sensible reforms, not only at the World Bank Group, but uh, Kristalina Georgieva, I think, is a real champion here. Uh, And and, uh, she is pushing hard to get these reforms in place. And then there are a whole group of other multilateral Mm -hmm. development banks, regional banks, national banks. There's a general awakening among all of them. Here's an example, uh, Francine. Uh, if, if you're a business in Nigeria and you want to build a wind farm, your interest rate is seven times right. higher right. than it is if you're in an OECD country. That's uh, insane. Obviously, the market is perceiving risk of various kinds there, but that's what these uh, publicly funded, the multilateral development banks should be doing, taking that first level of risk off of the table and speaking for society as a whole and saying it's in our public interest to make this transition faster. Why is the U.S. not doing more? I know we have an agreement on methane, but at the same time, President Biden has been hamstrung with some of the politics back home. Why, why is this happening now? Well, we still have a political uh, battle to, to win uh, in the U.S., uh, and it's a divided uh, uh politics in the U.S. and uh, the narrowest possible majority in the Senate. So uh, President Biden, I think he did a fantastic job with his two days here. Uh, And I think he's done a fantastic job in proposing a really meaningful climate package. But it's very tough when you have a 50-50 Senate and a couple of the Democratic senators are not yet on board, one from a coal state. Uh, So it's a challenge. I do think that in, in another couple of weeks, I think before the end of the year, certainly, this package will be passed. It may be modified again, but I think it, I think it will be passed. Well, will that help with convincing China to come on board, or is it about including China? Well, yes, I think it has to help in bringing China on board, yes. If, if China can say you're uh, preaching temperance from a, from a bar stool, as they say, then it lets them off the hook a bit. But, but I'm convinced that China is uh, serious about making its transition. They're building more solar panels and wind farms than the rest of the world put together. They're still burning more coal than the rest of the world put together, and that has to be transitioned away much faster. And they can save money by doing it. 
so, but the coal industry in China is as powerful as the coal industry in the U.S., and so it, it obviously is taking some time to make that transition. There's an old Chinese proverb, I'm told, that says the mountain is high and the emperor is far away. I think that some of the regional governments in China have close ties with coal and coal-related uh, industrial operations, and it ta it's taking them some time to get them on board. But they've introduced carbon pricing in a, in a chunk of their society. It's due to expand. They have uh, put out a net zero goal. It's Far, uh, farther out than I would like it to be, but they, they plan their work and work their plan, and I think they're determined to do it. Um, Vice President, when we see how much green finance there is out there, uh, I had a, a chief executive calling it tsunami of green finance. Yeah. What happens to the companies that are not working on their transition now? Well, I, I think we're in the early stages of a, a sustainability revolution that's the biggest investing and business opportunity in history. Uh, and those who don't recognize that and, and adapt to it are in commercial at commercial risk, of course, uh, because they're they're going to be left behind. You remember the subprime uh, mortgage uh, bubble that led to the Great Recession. We now have a subprime carbon bubble of $22 trillion uh, based on a, a, an absurd assumption that all of that, uh, all of those carbon fuels are going to be burned. They're not going to be. They cannot be, especially because the new renewable sources of electricity are much cheaper now and will be cheaper in 100 percent of the world, already in two-thirds of the world. So that, do you believe that once we have a carbon market, a proper carbon market functioning with prices, that it reprices private assets? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, once carbon risk, the, the climate uh, crisis risk, is internalized, right. then yes, it's going to affect the value of all these uh, assets. It, we've had this insane uh, illusion that we can just ignore uh, the impact of the climate crisis. But Mother Nature is telling us, no, not so fast. And these events are getting more extreme and more frequent, and people everywhere are recognizing it, and they're demanding action. There's still resistance, of yeah. course, and the legacy fossil fuel complex and the bankers that continue to invest uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in it every year. Uh, they, they remind me of the old cartoon of Wile E. Coyote running off the <laughs> edge of the cliff and the legs keep moving until gravity takes hold. We're in that moment now. We're in a transition, and those who make the transition faster are going to do better as a result. Vice President Gore, thank you so much for your time on Bloomberg today. And with that, I'm going to send it back to you in New York, John, and we'll have plenty more from Glasgow COP26. Francine, thank you so much to you as well. Eric Adams is from Brooklyn. He uh, joins us this morning. Uh, congratulations, Eric Adams. I just mentioned you've done 72 <laughs> interviews this morning. How is your Wednesday look? Uh, busy as you could expect, but exciting. And I believe yeah. that uh, I want to be known as a GSD mayor, uh, get stuff done. Uh, it's time right. to really deal with the problems that we're facing yeah. in the city, and I'm excited about it. I'm sure you'll accept a congratulations call from Mr. Jesse at Amazon or Mr. Bezos of Amazon. You, I'm sure you will tell me you would not have lost Amazon out of Queens. Amazon looks to move to Jersey City or at the margin move to Jersey City. How do you keep tech jobs in the five boroughs? 
By doing what I have been doing, um, for the last uh, three months now, I have been sitting down with tech leaders of uh, several Israeli companies uh, and other companies here in the city. Uh, just two days ago, I met with 30 uh, large tech startups. And in the borough of Brooklyn, we witnessed a 356% increase in tech startups in a 10-year period. So this has been a place mm-hmm. where I believe in technology and how do we use technology to change the delivery of goods and services in this city. Uh, I'm not going to mince words. You know it's a tough Bloomberg interview. That's what we do here. (laughs) What is going to be your change process in the first 30 days from the mayor you replace? Safety, zeroing in on gun and gang violence. We have to deal with the actualization of fear and violence and the perception because they both become a reality to people. So I'm going to institute an anti-gun plainclothes unit, uh, which was similarly disbanded by the current mayor. And we're going to zero in on gun violence. Okay, I I don't need to interrupt here, but the news flow is so important, Mayor, that the district attorney elected uh, maybe disagrees with you on that. How do you put in process planes closed officers to protect the citizens? How do you actually affect that? Well, two things. Number one, the district attorney, he prosecute crimes. The police department, we arrest people that is probable cause to believe they commit a crime. And I'm not going to mix the two. I think right now we are debating with the laws we don't like in Albany. We don't like the way prosecutors are prosecuting crime. That's not our job. My job is to make sure if someone has probable cause to commit a crime, I'm in charge of the police department. I don't need approval to put in place a plainclothes anti-gun unit. And we're going to do our job and let others do their jobs. We're speaking with Eric Adams, New York City mayor-elect. Mr. Adams, you know, this is this is Bloomberg. We think about the markets. We think about, um, you know, stock exchanges. And, and right now, you know, as we know, New York City has been the global leader in global finance. I think that's still the case today. The future is going to be a little bit differently. We think about some things like crypto. That is a big, big growth business within the financial services industry and technology. How are you going to make New York City a crypto friendly city, a crypto leader? Uh, and how will that benefit the city? Well, part of the meetings I have been having uh, is to bring together the whole Bitcoin uh, industry. And we need to do several things with it. Number one, we need to look at what's preventing the growth of Bitcoins and cryptocurrency uh, in our city. What is in the way of that? I met with the mayor of Miami, and we're going to have a friendly competition. Uh, He's uh, extremely inviting. He has a a Miami coin that is doing very well. Uh, We're going to look in the direction to carry that out. But we're also going to do something else. We have to build out a pipeline of young people that can fill these jobs and understand the new technology because we can't have a one-sided city where certain uh, groups and areas are doing well and those in the inner cities are not. I'm going to build a pipeline to success in the city. All right. Mayor Adams, uh, we have to wrap this up as you go to Bloomberg Television to speak with John Farrell. Good luck with that. Uh, and I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but, but, but Mayor Adams, you walked in once as a tough kid in Brooklyn to the 88th Precinct. That's not tough. That's fancy Fort Greene. I mean, you're living large in Fort Greene. You've got to walk in to a fancy Fort Greene or some of the toughest districts in this city is an ex-cop with people who maybe didn't vote for you, maybe didn't get behind you because they have a more traditional view. 
How do you make peace with the line officers of the New York Police Department? Well, first, it's very important not to view uh, geographical areas of the city during our current time. Uh, yes, Fort Greene is wonderful right now with multi-million dollar homes. But I was there when we were dealing with real robberies, real crimes. And I also patrolled this city as a transit cop during the mid-80s, riding a subway system with a radio that didn't operate alone, by myself. So when you start talking about tough, that's what I know. It's tough getting off the floor of a precinct after you are arrested. It's tough being a dishwasher, going to school at night, surviving education with a learning disability that was undiagnosed. Tough is not something I'm afraid of, and tough is not something no. that New York is afraid of. We're resilient, and we're going to be fine. New York is back. On Bloomberg Radio, Eric Adams with us. He will continue on Bloomberg Television Worldwide as well. Mayor Adams, congratulations, and thank you so much for joining us as well. Boy, Paul, is that a different tone from... Yep. I, I mean, I'm not trying to get into the politics of it. I will state as a fact that's a different tone. That is a different tone, and it's probably reflective <clears throat> of what a lot of folks in New York City are feeling, which is we need to kind of get control back of this city here. Um, and so that's certainly been one of the messages from Mayor-elect uh, Adams. And so again, he'll have a, you know, I, as you mentioned yeah. on, in your question, you know, that's those first 30 days, boy, there's a lot to get done and, and, and setting the tone, I guess. Is probably I key. would give him longer than 30 days, but, but to all of our audience worldwide and across this nation, unfortunately, what the mayor talks about on people's fears, it's true. It's across all income levels. Yep. Everyone, you just can feel it in the city. Yep. And it's, uh, it's tangible. Yeah. And we've, we've seen this before in New York City. And if you yes. could, if you can well get said. that yes. under control, yes. if you can get that managed, then a lot of other things fall into place, yeah. whether it's investment, whether it's tourism. Um, yeah. And um, but that's we've seen this before and we've seen we have we've a playbook and, you know, certainly would need to be adjusted for the times, presumably. Yeah. But that will probably be one of the if not the leading uh, job for uh, yeah. the mayor elect on day one. Do you see how I behave myself? Yeah, very well. I said, very you well. know, I didn't say Mr. Mayor, the pothole on <laughs> yeah. Fifth Avenue at right. 94th Street. Can we get that fixed? Yeah, exactly. I didn't bring up Please. 32nd Street between 6th and 7th there we, Avenue. We were that, well behaved. Exactly. As we can do, we can rip up the script with Abby Joseph Cohen. She is acclaimed at Goldman Sachs. She is one of the people that keeps the fearful in the market participating in David Costin's great bull market over at the Goldman Sachs shop. We're thrilled that the advisory director and senior investment strategist at Goldman Sachs joins us this morning. Abby, I'm going to rip up the script, and I can do this for someone who wrote Aristotle on investment decision-making in the Financial Analyst Journal a million years ago. Abby, we're all getting lengthier. We're all playing the parlor game of extending the x-axis. We've been here before, haven't we? Uh, we certainly have, Tom, and it's a pleasure to be with you and, and the team. Uh, another word we could use is protracted. Um, basically, there are several factors now uh, behind the inflation that we're seeing globally. Some of these may prove to be transitory, yet protracted. Uh, that includes some of the supply chain issues. Uh, but some of them do represent the sort of inflation that one gets uh, during the course of an economic expansion. And the one that I'm looking at most closely has to do with wages. Uh, we yep. have seen a notable pickup in average hourly earnings. And on the one hand, that's terrific. 
uh, because it says something about the ability of consumers to continue to spend. And it also tries to get across uh, the idea that we did go through an extended period prior to the pandemic in which wages were not quite keeping up. Uh, however, if those wages get embedded um, in, in the economy, what we do see is that core CPI, and more importantly for the Fed, core PCE uh, moves up. Uh, but the expectation of my Goldman Sachs economist colleagues is that we will start to see that calm down. One other point, if I may. Please. And that is we're still in a period where year-on-year comparisons are really difficult to do because right, we are right. emerging from this extraordinary period. Now, a year ago, uh, personal spending was negative. Uh, this year, it's positive. So what do we think is going to happen? Uh, there are going to be some price pressures, and there are going to be some supply chain pressures as well. Abby, let's do some Cornell mathematics here. And it's about the rates of change and the dynamics involved. And we can look at wage growth. As I, I agree with your core theme uh, there as well. The gloom crew speaks of abrupt. They speak of gross second derivatives and even harmful first derivatives. Your shop says, calm down. State why we should calm down and avoid the fear of dynamics. I think we should calm down for a few reasons, Tom. One is, as you point out, the mathematics. Uh, the year-on-year comparisons are really fraught right now, and we'd much rather look at an extended period of what's happening and what's happening at the core level. The other thing we need to keep in mind is that there are several factors out there, three big ones, that work in the opposite direction that may suggest that economic growth will actually have the brakes somewhat applied even if the Fed doesn't do anything. What are they? Uh, number one, we are seeing right now a change in fiscal policy. And I'm not talking about the packages that are stuck in Congress. What we're seeing is that the programs that were previously implemented are rolling off. And so the increase in federal spending, uh, which was, as you know, robust and equal to about 9% of GDP earlier in the pandemic, uh, is now gonna be growing at about 1%. And if fiscal policy isn't changed, it will be down about 2% uh, next year in 2022. So that's a bit of a break. Uh, the other thing that we have to keep in mind is that we are not seeing uh, the sort of ro rebound that many had expected in terms of employment. Yeah. I'm not talking about the unemployment rate. I'm talking about the participation rate, where there are many groups of people who are saying either they don't want to come back into the workforce or they don't want to do it now. So this includes uh, working moms who yeah. are having a problem with childcare and their kids are not yet vaccinated. It includes retirees, uh, the baby boom generation, a very large cohort uh, in the United States. Um, and let's not forget the missing immigrants. In the decade prior to the pandemic, about 10% of the net growth in the US labor force was due to immigration, both at the lower end of the uh, spectrum and at the high end, you know, yeah. very skilled people. Well, uh, we've seen that reduce one more factor, if I may. And that is while the US and many other nations are slowly now emerging from pandemic restrictions, China is extremely tough on these restrictions. And China has 30%, roughly, of the world's global manufacturing capacity. If they tighten up or stay tight, that has implications for 
economic growth, everyone's been focusing on the supply chain and the inflationary aspects. It also has impact on the growth. Abby, all of this sounds fairly negative. However, I wonder if the biggest pain trade in markets is not being bullish enough because this, frankly, supports the idea of real yields being as negative as they are and there being a supportive backdrop for risk, at least from a monetary and fiscal policy standpoint. Do you agree that pain, the pain trade is not being bullish enough, not necessarily being bearish uh, potentially uh, failing to be so? Yeah, you know, the the economics team that I work with does believe this will be a protracted process, that the Fed, if it does uh, announce this afternoon, as they have signaled, that they're going to taper, they will taper taper very gradually, and that the rise in rates from the Fed funds level, in any event, could be a year off. But we've already seen, as you pointed out earlier, that interest rates have already risen in anticipation of this happening. And so the key for the stock market in particular will be economic growth and earnings growth. And here again, I would urge people to recognize that those year-on-year comparisons are gonna be very difficult to do uh, simply because we're coming from a base that was so incredibly depressed in many industries that to uh, talk about that growth rate uh, decelerating, still good, earnings still growing, but the growth rate decelerating, um, you know, as as Tom would put it, the second derivative uh, is not what we would like. But it's still going to be a good number. And I think that's I've just got a final question to squeeze in. Are we doing the Tom Keane, Abby Joseph Cohen Christmas special this year? Is that happening, Tom? I, it's up to Miss Joseph Cohen. Her people have not talked to can, my people. Can you tell us, Abby? Is it happening? I look forward to this every year. Are we doing it? I, I, I it will depend she upon what through. Tom has to say. Okay. Well, very good. And, and whether I whether I get that invitation, yeah. I'm 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 well, ready with not, my uh, early right Christmas now? sweater. John, can I summarize it? I believe Miss Joseph Cohen uh, uh, just predicted SPX 6,000. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. That's that, what I is, took out of that. Is that your invite for the Christmas special? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Next stage, 6K. David, she's front running you. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, that. David. It won't happen again. <laughs> yeah. It'll never happen again, David. Abby, thank you. There it's goes great to Joseph see you. Cohen again. Bye. Abby Joseph Cohen there of Goldman Sachs on this equity market. Surveillance fact, John Farrow, Lisa Bramowitz, and I all at gunpoint had to read Dickens' Tale of Two City. He read it because he wanted to. Michael Gapin joins us on the Tale of Two Tapers now, Chief U.S. Economist, Barclays Investment Bank. How is a Treasury taper, Michael Gapin, different from a Fed taper? I think it's mainly because the Fed is a, is a unique holder of Treasury securities, of course. They have different incentives, different holding periods. They're different actors. So I think it's, it's more about... Yes, on net, these two things are generally canceling themselves out, but the Fed is backing out of the market as a very unique buyer. I, th- I think that's still the, the main message. So I, I wouldn't take the net, the net comparison too far. I do think the big news is the Fed, the Fed will be tapering. The big news is they'll be tapering and they will be cautious and conservative as the August institution is. In this November, how measured will Chairman Powell be? I think it'll be fairly measured. Typically, when the Fed is is tightening policy in some form, they they like to offset it by giving you a little something on the other side. And and I don't think that's going to be a strong pushback against market pricing. I just think it'll be an emphasis that the decision to taper and the decision to lift rates are two very different things. They have different criterion. The bar for lifting rates is higher, and that's a long way off. 
So I think that's, that's going to be what he'll try to kind of soft pedal the taper message with. Yes, we're starting to taper. Yes, we're still concerned about risk to the outlook for inflation next year. Yes, there's a risk management component to this decision. But, you know, really don't push this too far. They're two separate decisions. I think that's where his cautious will, will come in. Michael, do you expect him to say that we expect a lengthier uh, transitory period going forward? I think that's, so you were debating this in the last segment, it kind of has become a dirty word. Um, it, it wasn't in his press conference statement last time around. He didn't mention it in the press conference itself, that word transitory. It's in the statement. So yeah, I think the flavor of that has to stay. I still think in general their forecasts are all consistent and ours are still very consistent with a, you know, a transitory or temporary impulse. The duration of it is just longer than we, than we thought. So I think they have to find a way to keep that flavor around, but maybe back away from the pure usage of, of that word. What's the potential market reaction if Fed Chair Jay Powell does not push back significantly against the idea of one or even two rate hikes next year? Well, in the short run, it, it may mean that the market moves to, to price in more hikes as they've done elsewhere. So, and as certainly they did say immediately following Lagarde's press conference, uh, you know, previously. So, I, but from the Fed's point of view, it, and I think they're right on this. It's a long way out for them. It's at least six months down the road for them, given right. what they know today. They don't really have any incentive to push back strongly against market pricing or or confirm it. So, you know, I think at this point, it's get the taper decision done communicate that they're two separate decisions in terms of tapering versus liftoff and kind of let the markets have at it. Michael, frame for us the immovable force of gross excess savings, or I should say excess gross savings, and also the immovable force is everybody's moving their terminal values out to a lengthier out. Put those two together right now. Yeah, I, I think part of it is so there is this big pool of excess saving that's out there. And it's still we're, we're just really now getting to the point whether we will know whether households are going to be drawing down on that pool of saving. If, if they do, because really right now it's government stimulus has faded out to the point where the personal savings rate is almost back to pre-pandemic levels. So you, you could see a situation now where the saving rate goes below, let's call it low single digits. And we'll see whether households draw down on that. If, if they do, then that's a situation where you could combine that with, with federal spending or infrastructure spending. And you have a prolonged period of above trend growth in, in the future. Uh, and depending on where inflation is, that could be a, a longer cycle. So I think that's how I would interpret it in terms of the contribution it could bring to demand, how long it keeps growth above trend, and therefore what it might mean for the duration of, of the tightening cycle. Michael, have we reached the point where jobs markets, uh, jobs data that we get, as we're going to get on Friday, really do indicate a shift or something true? Or are we just still seeing the comeback of a market that was so severely distorted by the pandemic? I think it's the latter. I, I think this is, you know, we've, we've debated about forecasts and the accuracy of models and so forth, and, and, you know, we can do that all day. But I think this is one point where we in the economist community, I think, have been pretty consistent. We've said, I believe, it's going to take 12 to 24 to 36 months to sort this all out. So I'm still in that camp. If you look at, at, the, at the data, for example, uh, the, the data will tell you about 4 million people were out of the job market last month because either they had COVID or they were taking care of somebody who has COVID. So that's a huge number. And obviously that rotates over, over time. 
And the, in terms of who's been out of the labor force, it's, it's mainly a married couple where financial resources generally can be shared so one person is stepping out for one reason or another. There's a lot of room for that to heal over time. We're not going to know in the next two to three months whether that changes. It's likely to be a long process. So that's my view is it'll come back more incrementally and it's going to take six to nine to 12 months to get a good idea of where that is. Michael, thank you, sir. Michael Gapin there. I appreciate the sound of a busy office, a busy trading floor over at Barclays. It is, yes. Isn't that yes. good, Tom? Yeah, it is. Music to my ears. It's good to have you back. Thank you, sir, thank as you. always. <laughs> Let's head over to Glasgow, Scotland and catch up with Bloomberg's Francine Lacqua. Well, we still... Morning, Francine. We are still uh, too Good morning, John. I'm delighted actually to be here. It's day four because it started on Sunday. A little bit quieter. I know there's a lot of noise behind me just because there's a lot of uh, the big Wall Street titans. I just saw Larry Fink walk through the plenary because today is Finance Day. We also heard from Secretary Yellen moments ago. I am delighted to be joined now by the AstraZeneca Chief Executive Officer, he's Pascal Soyo, to talk about all things sustainable. And we'll also talk about the vaccine. Mr. Soyo, thank you so much for joining us today. First of all, it's a little bit counterintuitive. I know AstraZeneca has had some very good plans on scope one, two, and also three, but it's counterintuitive to look at the, you know, medicine industry and saying what you can do for sustainability. Is it all about drug disposal? How much clout do you think your industry has to actually make a real difference to ESG? Good morning, Francine, and thank you for having me. The, I think the, the pharmaceutical industry and the healthcare sector as a whole can make a big impact. Uh, the healthcare sector globally represents about 4% of carbon emissions, so it's quite substantial. And we can, of course, as companies, work on our own emissions, which, you know, as a company, we have a plan to do that. By 2025, we'll be uh, carbon zero from that viewpoint. We can work on our scope three and our supply chain, and we are doing this as a company. And I'm also working with the rest of the industry to do that. And then, importantly, we can work with the healthcare sector as a whole, like in the NHS in the UK, to really make sure we reduce carbon emissions across the entire sector. I guess the most difficult thing is how do you dispose of how do you dispose of it you know, in a safe way that's not damaging to the environment? How long away do we have to go until most medicine, 95% of medicine, are safe to dispose of? Well, a lot of work is being done on this too, um, but disposing of medicine is really a, a slightly different topic compared to the carbon em emission reduction we are committing to. But a number of uh, companies are really looking at how do we actually recycle or, 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 or dispose of our packaging of our medicines and, and recycle all of this in an in, in a environmentally friendly manner. Do you think that these talks are reinvigorating the mean for sustainability? Yeah, I mean, I mean coming or, here is very energizing, I have to say, because I can sense the momentum is growing. Yeah. Not only governments are really making commitments, and I know that we would always like to hear better, stronger commitments, but it goes in the, wrong, the right direction. And importantly, the private sector is now stepping up. Yeah. yeah, and now we need to look at the details and where the money is going and how you hold them accountable. Yes. But speaking of commitments, what's your commitment to vaccines? Our commitment to vaccine is really to bring this vaccine to as many people as possible around the world. And so far, we have delivered 1.8 billion doses of vaccine globally, mostly to the low-middle-income countries. And so we are very proud of this. Uh, many people, thousands of people have worked uh, day and night over the last few months 
to really deliver this vaccine that is making a huge difference in many countries around the world. Uh, Mr. Suryo, what do you make of the U.S. of the new U.S. pricing bill actually in drugs? It seems to penalize some of the smaller molecule drug developments versus, for example, some of the biologics. Well, you know, I mean, we it, it was clear that something has I mean, it is clear something has to be done in the United States to help patients get access to their medicine at an affordable cost. Um, so we really welcome this uh, proposal to introduce a cap uh, of a $2,000 cap of out-of-pocket costs for patients every year. That will really help them take their medicine uh, without you know, the difficulties they face today. And we also understand that something has to be done and it's a negotiation between industry and, and all the stakeholders. And, and I think we, we have to do this without destroying innovation, which has been mostly in the U.S. over the last number of years, actually. I, I believe that what uh, the, dis- the discussion is going on today is really getting there, actually. I understand you know, that the new bill also removes incentives to test kids. What do you make of that? To, to, to test children. Um, this I'm not aware of. I have to say I'm sorry about this, but but um, the, uh, the 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 discussion and the, the the decision that has been communicated overnight um, is really balancing quite well, reducing price, negotiating the price of some drugs, uh, but at the same time protecting innovation. Yeah. I mean, is it you know is there a danger that because of the pandemic, which I know has put really health at the forefront, which means that a lot more people are engaged with your industry, that as you're dealing with the pandemic, it will not incentivize other companies, drug companies, healthcare companies to decarbonize. Oh, I think the whole industry is actually committed to committing now to decarbonizing. I, you know, I'm part of the uh, task force within the SMI, the Sustainable Market uh, Initiatives, launched by His Royal Highness the Prince Charles. And as an industry, we're working together to decarbonize and reduce our carbon emissions uh, in an accelerated manner. So it's really quite exciting to see the pharmaceutical companies coming together to work with our suppliers but also to work with NHS and other healthcare systems around the world so collectively we can really reduce the footprint. Yeah. Monsieur Pascal Soyo, thank you so much for joining us. He's of course the Chief Executive Officer of AstraZeneca. Another important story developing through the week over in Glasgow, Scotland. Let's head back to catch up with Francine Lacroix. Hey, Fran. Hi, John. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by the president of Costa Rica, uh, President Alvarado, to talk a little bit about uh, his country, some of the pledges here, and of course, what can be done to save the planet. President, thank you so much for joining us right here live on Bloomberg Surveillance. Nearly a quarter of your landmass is under some sort of conservation. You're doing extremely well in terms of energy production, electrifying into more renewable sources. The big concern is transportation. About 50% of your emissions come from transportation transportation that is still dirty. How can you make it cleaner? Well, thanks for the opportunity. It's a pleasure being with you in Bloomberg. Well, it's true that our main footprint and fossil carbon footprint comes from transportation. Our electric grid, the electricity we produce is 99.5% clean and renewable. 
So our great opportunity is to electrify our transportation. So far what we have done, we have increased the number of electric vehicles in Costa Rica. We, are the, we have the highest per capita number of vehicles, electric vehicles in the region. That's one. And for that, we have a tax relief on electric vehicles. And also we multiply the stations to charge vehicles so you can go all across the country. Second, mass transportation. We're building an electric train throughout the main cities. 80, it's a project of 82 kilometers. And it's also an electric train from clean electricity. Mr. President, what kind of timeline can we actually see a meaningful difference? And when you look at the cars, I mean, what's selling? What do people want to buy? Well, uh, our timeline, we launched it by 2019, February. We were the first to launch our decarbonization plan, and we have a pathway from now to 2050. But by 2030, we have to see a strong progress in the electrification of our transportation to dramatically reduce our carbon footprint. And that's what we are aiming also with new schemes of public transportation, because we're not only targeting to private vehicles, but also public transportation to make it cleaner, more efficient. Uh, Mr. President, talk to me a little bit about the carbon market. First of all, are you pushing for some kind of carbon market offset that will happen very quickly? I know Panama is getting involved in carbon. When are we going to have a price for carbon? Well, that's one of the big discussions. And actually, that's the discussion on Article 6 that's going on in the negotiations during this COP. Uh, yes, we're pushing for that. But I think one of the great discussions has to do with, first, with trust trust in the developing world that we are going to implement the measures and also trust from the developed world that they are going to commit finance, both public and private. We have seen advancements and we have seen schemes, but they are still yeah, too frail. I was going to say, have you seen enough? I mean, is 100 no, billion enough? not and yet. Right. When will we see it and how much pressure are you putting on some of the developing well, economies? Well, being, we're being very open. I mean, whenever I address the floor, a couple of times that I've done, I've been very open and frank because, you see, there's the discussion of the developing countries are too risky. But here, the only risk I see is that if we don't act, there, there won't be any planet anymore. So I don't see any risk higher than that one. Risk is a matter of, uh, it's measured also in time and right. framing. So do you feel cheated by some of the top emitters? I mean, they also no, come I from the developed I use world. That word. I think we need to to go further in our commitments. I am confident because as, as, a, as humanity, I am optimistic. Right. How much do you need on the table to be sure to implement some of the strategies that you have from developed economies? Well, for example, in, through our policies, like the High Ambition Coalition for Earth and Nature, that is pushing to preserve 30% of oceans and 30% of lands, so far we have... Come, we have we have gathered the support of $5 billion through philanthropy. And that's a great start. Yesterday, Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, and Costa Rica, we together announced the protection of our oceans area, which is going to be one of the largest in the Pacific, and that's supported also by uh, philanthropy and by other contributors. We're in conversation with the president of Costa Rica. When you look at some of the things that have been on the table and what more can, we, you know, can be done, you're still dealing with a pandemic. Costa Rica is an open economy. The pandemic and COVID-19 is not 100% out of control. Is there a danger that it derails you and other countries, actually, in developing economies from reaching some of these sustainability targets? Well, that's one of the great risks. In our case, we have, uh, for the objective uh, population, 12 
age and older. We have more than 80%, 86% of a population with at least one doses, more than 65% with two doses. So we have advanced in that direction. But the fact, for example, that Africa has just 5% of people vaccinated is a great risk, not for Africa, for the rest of the world. So then we need to tackle that because a new variant can take us to the beginning. So we need to tackle that. Second great risk, and this is for emerging economies, for the developing world, for Latin America and the Caribbean. We've seen an increase on our fiscal deficits because we have to increase expenditure to tackle the pandemic, also increase expenditure to tackle climate change. Extreme weathers demand governments to invest in emergencies, for example. And at the same time, do pandemic we have seen a decrease on the taxes we collect. And those fiscal deficits are a new risk that we face. We are facing a debt risk throughout the region. All right, Mr. President, thank you so much. Is it nice being back in the UK? You studied here. Yeah, I studied here. No, it's great. Uh, uh, the only thing I didn't miss is uh, uh, how cold it it's is. cold weather. I know it is. Pre- <laughs> it's freezing in Glasgow. Thank you so much, Mr. President, there of Costa Rica. With that, Tom, I'm going to hand it back to you. In New York, I imagine it's warmer. I'm not sure. Here, it is pretty cold, even in the Congress Center. Francine, I do not miss the weather. I don't. I miss you. I don't miss the weather. Francine, thank you very much. From Glasgow, Scotland. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.